I'm Robert Bean, and this is Focus, Purpose and Leadership. I decided to create this podcast because in my 40-year career in the advertising and brand strategy worlds, I've come to learn about the fundamental importance of clarity and purpose, or in my terms, the value of having a single organizing principle, one that influences a business's culture, its products and services, and its reputation. In this series, I'll be chatting with CEOs and leaders who have put it into practice whilst developing their own successful businesses. In this episode, I talk to William Kendall, farmer, investor and serial entrepreneur. As managing director, William developed and ultimately sold New Covent Garden Soup Company and went on to discover, develop and sell Green and Black's chocolates. He's now working on his farm and on his latest venture, the range of premium soft drinks, Coarse and Press. As you'll hear, he's a man of many parts, and he's previously told me he's still not sure what he wants to do when he grows up. I was interested to read the fact that you had, why does the word dallied come into mind, but you had dallied with the law and with military and ultimately with investment banking before becoming this now famous serial entrepreneur. Um, and I, I'm interested to understand if the investment banking bit was the bridge from military and law to commerce. Was that how it started? I, I don't think so. I mean, I think I, I'm, I'm, it's a, an interesting question. And I think about, you know, and I ask people a lot about what formed them. You know, I started life as a farmer and I'm still a farmer, but, you know, I grew up in a farming business. And I think that that taught me something. I think farmers are, um, they're, they're, they're hardworking, they're stubborn, they're persistent, they're, they're mean, they're, well, they don't have any money. So on the whole, they tend to be resourceful. So I think it brings, it, 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 it sort of teaches you a sense of, um, of can do. So I think that's the starting point. I think, you know, joining the army, going to, I mean, I, and I did a sort of very quick spell in the army. I got, to, I did a, a month at Sandhurst and then, you become a platoon commander and it was all a bit embarrassing really because I didn't know a great deal and I was there with 30 people and it was incredibly indulgent of the army to allow some of us to do it they did it every year but it taught me about it taught me about leadership I mean you know the one thing you do in Santos if you're only there for three and a half weeks is just leadership 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 I mean you learn how to clean your shoes and iron your shirt and all of that but that that's all fast track it's all about leadership and I suppose, you know, growing up on a farm, your dad's the boss. So that taught me a bit about leadership. But I didn't realise it was about leadership. And then having it played back to you in a place where leadership is the main subject, you start thinking about it. And you start, you know, especially when you're arriving in an organisation which has got some serious professionals operating and you've done three and a half weeks and you're in charge of them, you think quite hard about leadership and you learn from the school of hard knocks that if you march in there and say, I'm the boss... There are a lot of people there to trip you up. The bar, um, the law taught me about thinking straight, about good arguments, about, you know, in advocacy, it's all about making one good argument really, really well. You know, I think before that, I was, it was all about showing off. If you're writing an essay at university and showing you've got 10 reasons yeah. why, yeah. you know, the, 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 the Spanish Empire declined. Well, yeah. actually, the bar is, it doesn't really matter about no. the other nine. Let's talk about the yes. one and make yes. a really good point. And seventhly. And yeah. seventhly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so I think that. And then the city, 
the city was sort of you know the city was the real world i mean it's a mad world and that's why i left it very quickly but actually it was a real you know it was it was it was kind of you learned about everything you learned about all business you learned about you know the shorthand you learned about the markets but most of all i learned that i couldn't work in an environment where you know the the, the product wasn't really of any great value i mean you know there, there is a value to doing these jobs in the city but they're less valuable than the man who keeps the pumps going in the in, in you know in the in the, in the water business mm, in the course, water. Yeah. so uh, um, and yet it's sort of given huge status by our society i just found that the idea of doing that for very long just uh, kind of appalled me disgusted me really so i ran from it um and i suppose because of that and at a time when everybody else was running towards the city and i went to business school and everybody went to business school so they could get into the city of london i was there with italians french germans all much cleverer than me all trying to work in the city of london and i tried it and was running away from it I kind of was running out of options and realized that I wanted to work in 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 somewhere that sort of borrowed from all of the experience that I had before I wanted to be somewhere not necessarily running them but but certainly at the table where the decisions were made which hadn't happened in my job in the city and I wanted to be somewhere where you know leadership when you're a young person counts and I wanted to have a product that made a difference, and and you know I loved food, food from farming, yeah, yeah. and and so you know there I ended up was. in Covent. There it was, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But it must have been when you first got there, tiny, wasn't it? Oh, it's tiny. Yeah. It was tiny, and it was very, um, it was chaotic. Um, of course, I didn't know it was chaotic. It just looked like a fantastic sort of schoolboy project, and everyone was running around so enthused. I mean, that, I knew I'd arrived in the right place because. Everyone was just so excited about it. I mean, I didn't want to go home for the first year I was there. It was just so <laughs> exciting. So fun, yeah. And unfortunately, you know, I wasn't married at the time, didn't have children, so there was no particular reason to go home. So we we worked very long hours. I'm not sure how productively, but we worked very, very long hours because we knew it was going to work. I mean, the, completely, I look at it now, and there was no real grounds to believe it was going to work other than the product was fabulous. Um, but, but Well, that's we knew- a start. Yeah, sorry, that's, you know, I didn't want to be too dismissive about that, no, but no. I was, wasn't yeah. I? Yeah, yeah, the product was fantastic. Yeah. I mean, it got better, but it was fantastic. One of my memories of that time, because that is, after all, where we first met, mm. uh, and you've just mentioned, actually, the enthusiasm, was the self-definition of the company there as being enthusiastic cooks, not, I forget whether it was trained chefs or any kind of other chefs, but it was very much about being enthusiastic cooks, and it did have that wonderful energy didn't it of people rolling their sleeves up getting stuck in large vats and experimentation and excitement and anything's possible i don't think we'd ever seen anything quite like it. well i think you're right you remember well and and you know you remind me but there were everything we were quite it was you know we were quite democratic i mean now now you know everyone worries about sort of you know the, the the growing hatred of corporates and and at the time, that was less of an issue. But it probably wasn't in the world of food. People were beginning to be suspicious. There were, you know, we'd had a succession and we were to have even more food scandals. So I think being real people who sounded more like, you know, a customer than a, than a producer then, yeah. was quite important. And, and, and it helps when it's genuine. And we were, we were just that. Mm. We were people who loved food. Mm. And had come up with an idea, or someone else had come up, but you know, but we'd found an idea, and and we sort of coalesced around around that, and we said, you know, we had we had this wonderful test, which in a way is quite elitist, which was, do we release a batch of soup, which is 
would you serve this for your friends to your friends for dinner tonight? So sometimes the, the, the factory produced chunky carrot soup and the carrot and coriander wasn't to spec, but we tasted it thought well, it tastes delicious. <laughs> and you know, it's just like you would do at home. It hasn't gone anything like the yeah, plan, but actually yeah. tastes good and your friends are coming. So yeah. we would we would release it and we'd we'd sell it and the supermarket would say, What are you doing? You know, this isn't anything like the stuff you showed us. And yeah, but it you know, it tastes great. So we did that and we would have dispatch bites running around London at late at night when we were all off at, you know, friends or in the pub because these things would happen and we would you know, I, I remember sitting in a pub and pouring out two cartons of soup because they wanted to know whether we could release it. It was very, it was that sort of very exciting. It was very sort of immediate, the mm. whole thing. Mm. And the same with, you say, with, you know, with, with product development and which sounds very corporate. So, you know, when we were coming up with new ideas, they were, you know, we were trawling our mum's cookbooks and our granny's cookbooks. And, you know, there was a great one, which you turned into an advert with, with, with Nina Bard, who was our, a credit controller, I think, and she, you know, she turned up every day, and she had this delicious soup, and 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 it was a, it was clearly, you know, it was an Indian. Her, she'd come from the subcontinent, or her parents had, and it was a delicious smelling soup, and she produced it every day. And one day, someone plucked up curry and said, "Could they try some? Completely delicious. What's the recipe?" She had no idea what the recipe was, so we had to go home with her, and because she, she made it every morning or every night, and she had to sort of put it all Do together it, it, from her head brilliant. and that became one of our yeah. great sellers and yeah. it became a great yeah. ad so yeah. that was that was nine years there yeah and sold to daniel's plc and yes. I, I remember all that time yeah um the motivations behind selling it i, I mean beyond the obvious motivations but the timing behind selling it was there anything significant there i think we were finding it quite difficult to imagine where to go next um, we had got it up to a certain level. It had been really difficult. You know, we'd had every headwind, partly our own inexperience initially, but 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 then just market headwind. We'd had bad luck. Maybe you know, we'd had things like factory fires. We'd had an extortionist trying to really close the whole business. We're not trying to close the business now, but you know, we, there was a danger of that happening. So we were feeling quite bruised by the end of it, and. Growth was beginning to slow. New products didn't seem to be working quite as well as the core products. So, um, and and we had shareholders who'd been in for a long time. I was there for nine years, but some of our shareholders had been in for longer. We had an institutional shareholder who, to be fair on them, was not putting us under pressure to sell. But we always knew that that was how they worked. And I think we felt it was it was a good time to to go to the market. We've been courted by various organisations over the years who said, you know, if ever we wanted to sell. I think personally as well, we were, you know, what was what age was I? I was in my thirties, and and you know, unless you're going to run a business forever, and we weren't going to run that business forever because we owned a relatively small part of it. You're probably defined by taking a business either from the start or near the start, as we had in that case, turned it round turned it into you know great success at the time and exited it and returned the money with profits to the to the shareholders it seemed like a sort of good thing to, to do but i'm probably post-rationalizing it cycle, yeah. yeah um and I, i'm not sure you know looking back on it could we have done something else i yes we could have you know it was that we were at the beginnings of the of the age of ready meals of of, of you know and there were businesses that were not a dissimilar size from us at the time. I'm on the board of one now, and it turns over 1.3 billion. Mm. So we could have mm. rolled the dice again mm. and and 
done some really exciting stuff. But I always thought, and that'd be part of the reason for the question, was there was something about the new Covent Garden Soup Company brand that, to my mind, was somehow slightly underexploited. And, of course, the word soup in that name would suggest that it might needed to have been pegged back to guess what soups. But I'm not yeah. sure that was the case. I mean, the, the Covent Garden, something else company could have been. Yeah. You know, because it stood for so many other things beyond, I mean, some of the things we're talking about. Yeah. You know, it's a, an, a natural, enthusiastic goodness and all the rest of it. And when it was sold, I did wonder what Daniels might do with it beyond more variants and more facings. Yeah. Um, not sure it's really flown quite much more than well, it, 30,000 feet is it it's there and it's 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 much bigger mm. um i don't think it's gone beyond soup i mean it, it i think it became the new covent garden food company at some mm. point but it you're right it, all those wider values which which were very resonant with um the, the a growing section of the public and even more so today could easily have been um, developed into yeah. new products and into into new activities. That, well, that was in '98, I think. Was so. I mean, yeah. it was in that sense ahead of its time. But all those natural good things were hardly a faddish thing, were they? I mean, they, they, they've been around forever. It's just a matter of how they're exploited. Yeah, but they were changing. They were, they, they, you know, they, they, it was evolving. And I think we were in touch because, you know, we went on to do an organic business, and, the, and one of the reasons we went on to do an organic business was that. We were finding that more and more of our customers were talking about organics. Yeah. So. In fact, we towards the end we thought, well, "Shall we do an organic range?" And we got the feedback, and you'll probably remember this, which is we thought you were organic already, which was both a yeah good news and bad. News. Yeah, no, exactly. Shock horror. So yeah. no, don't expect yeah. to charge more for yeah. something that we thought we were exactly. already getting. What yeah. now? Stymied. Yeah. Um, well, let, let's move on to that then, because that's a natural segue. Now, I want to test your memory because mine was you turning up at our offices in Regent Street, as it was at the time, with Craig Sams. Mm. And my version of the story was that you had bought the Whole Earth Food Company. Craig had founded it. Yeah, uh, He was a pioneer in, in organic and all sorts of other good things. And you turned up with two suitcases full of products. And we did have quite a large board table. And my memory of it is this thing was covered. And you stood at one end and looked at me and said, well, well which ones of these should we keep? <laughs> yeah. And the three of us then rummaged around. Yeah. And after a bit of, based on no more than judgment or anything else, I seem to remember we put the cornflakes to one side and the peanut butter to one side. And right towards the end, somebody picked this bar of chocolate up and said, what's this green and black thing that's lying in this pile of other whole earth yeah. foods kind of take it from there do you not remember that i mean that, I, re I remember i re obviously i remember the um the meeting and and you describe it very well and whether it was the cornflakes or the the peanut butter i mean but but we had met craig um we'd met him as part of a sort of wider journey of discovery looking for something to do next i mean nick and and i nick was my finance partner at the time, or remains so, we'd sold Covent Garden and we found ourselves in an office which someone had lent us and, and with an old-fashioned telephone on the desk and, and, and it didn't ring. Um, <laughs> and, and so we went down to Pronto Print and got some cards printed, Kendall and Beer, you know, job too small. So, you know, we were, we were kind of feeling quite flush with cash from having sold the business, but not a clue what to do with the rest of our lives. And all of our contemporaries were busy... You know, working very, very yeah. hard in their thirties in the city or wherever. So we went yeah. and had lots of conversations, and I went to a supper party with a friend and met a whole load of people, including Craig, 
And Craig said, it's odd, you know, I've been doing this organic thing for 30 years and no one's shown any interest at all apart from a few health food shops and suddenly everyone's all over me. And yet I don't seem to be making any money out of it. So long and the short of it, we worked out that Craig was, you know, a brilliant visionary and but, you know, running a business was not his best suit. And so we bought the business. We did, we knew the chocolate was in there um, and it and it was a separate brand and you know, we were excited by all of them, but I think we knew partly because the chocolate was much more was making more money. It was more that we knew that that was the one we probably should be sticking to. But of course, what happens when you um, you, you know you, you you acquire a whole new family? You you start dealing with the problem children first. So all of those things that you remember on the table were tantalisingly exciting. You know, do we what we should have done if we been classically trained at McKinsey has dumped them all and got stuck into green and black straight away because all of the financials back that up. But well, we, I mean, but that's kind of what happened in time. Well, it wasn't is. It? But, yeah, you know, yeah, but we, yeah. we, given that we, you know, have been to business school and all of that, it took us several <laughs> years to get there. <laughs> well, I'm sure after Quite a the lot event, of all yeah. is forgiven. But, but I, I think my head was turned at the time because. It's interesting hearing you were looking into organic and and wanted to ride that tide. And here was this company that that's what it stood for, called called Whole Earth, with this whole Mm. array of products. And on the face of it, it would have made sense to have done something with the Whole Earth brand. And and the products coming from it could be sorted out later. But actually what's happened, of course, is all that's sort of gone by the by. And this little thing then of course you were aware of it but it was an odd one out because it wasn't called whole earth and it was called green and black that's the one that went on to become this colossal success it's sort of strange well yeah it is but it, it i mean it it's it just it was a it was a beautifully conceived brand in a sector that was crying out for innovation and for what we could do to it so i i don't think it was that surprising it was smaller than whole earth it was newer than whole earth it had many of the same values because it was owned by the same person. I mean, the only reason it had a separate brand is that Craig had set this rule that, you know, sugar is a poison. As I said, he was a visionary. And, you know, it turns out we all know now, now that sugar is not good for us. But, you know, he was there 30 years beforehand. And, and his wife very wisely said, well, if you make sugar, if you make chocolate and don't put any sugar in it, it'll taste disgusting. So he had to create a separate brand to make the, the, the chocolate. But that was the only reason he had a separate brand. Otherwise, it was all going to be part of the same portfolio and it was treated as such. Mm. So it took a, t- a while before they sort of diverged and we ran them all together. You know, it was a, they, were, they were both great brands and we just didn't have the resource at the time to, to run them both. But again, I look back on it and thought, well, we could have made the resource. We just didn't you know, think our way through it. So we decided to sell one. Mm. Uh, and and um, and the rest, as they say, is history. Yeah. So that eventually, uh, I think in 2005, was sold to Cadbury. Cadbury, so, yeah. yeah. We'd sold Whole Earth. Oh, sold Whole Earth. To, 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 yeah. Three years beforehand to somebody yeah. else, to, to the Sun. And, yeah. and, and when that exchange took place, what ongoing role did you have with... Well, I remained a non-executive director, so I'd been chief executive up to that point. Um, and I stepped back from doing that role. Cadbury put somebody in to to do the chief executive job from within their organisation. And I was there really to stop them. And I mean, this their words, not mine, but just, you know, to stop them doing something stupid. I mean, they were very, very anxious that they bought this jewel that 
had a whole load of values which perhaps um you know they a big multi-billion corporate didn't have or well, didn't have know, i mean we would could. we'd say they did have i mean they you know we would have said they'd invented them 100 years beforehand but they felt quite vulnerable about about being accused by others of sort of buying this thing and trying to snuff it out and so you know they wanted to ensure that the opposite happened and so my job as well as just being a general non-executive director was to you know to call out behavior that that looked like it might threaten mm. be the, the guardian success, yeah. be the guardian yeah. And, yeah. and and I and one other colleague remained involved mm. doing that mm. for for 5 years mm. and we, yeah I mean, it's just uh, uh, history is littered isn't it of those examples of these heart companies as it were being bought by these giant corporates and time and again one worries for them I, I mean, what do you think about innocent and what they've done is it, that that one seems to me to have taken okay actually innocent continue yeah. to be big and strong and powerful and sort of as true to themselves it seems like as they ever were aren't they i think so i think so i mean maybe they've lost some of their sort of you know sparky sparky joyful yeah, sort of yeah, youth but yeah. i mean they've been around a long time and i think because the statistics suggest that you know more more often than not the business is damaged by the by the change of ownership i think these big businesses have worked out that they need to do it better mm. when i talk to big companies these days and i work for some of them they're much more humble about all of this they're very wary of it you know the the biggest danger in a way is that they go too far the other way which is sort of what cabri did with us which was that you know, there was so much respect for the brand that they failed to, re- to, to to exploit the benefits of being part of a big <laughs> yes. family. I did read somewhere that you're reputed to have said that you regretted selling to them. Yeah, but but uh, correct me if I'm wrong. But I, but I think the real interpretation of that was more about again what we were talking about was whether there was the perfect time, whether there was more to be had from Green rather than selling to Cadbury's per se. Is that was that really the point? I regret the fact that we sold it too early because it was storming away, but we made that decision several years before we did sell it, and so we had little choice. But it was, you know, we never believed it would do as well as it did, even though our business plan said it was going to do as well as it did. (laughs) And I think there is something about entrepreneurs who, you know, ignore the advice of their friends and family who tell them that this great new idea or this little product that's lying on the desk before them is never going to work. And you, you believe in it. You believe, you believe, you believe. And at just at that point when all of you, those same friends say, you were right, I can't believe it, it's everywhere, you suddenly get this wall of doubt. And it's probably about having all or too many of your eggs in one basket and you suddenly get very risk-averse just when actually the rational entrepreneurs will be saying, you were right. And I, th- I see that again and again. That's with, interesting. Um, and so you, you have a sort of overwhelming desire to de-risk and it's you need somebody to say, no, guys, we're going to go. We're going to go for it now. We're really, really well set. But- I was very amused by the, the the attendant story that came from that original one about you talking to a German businessman, having explained that you'd sold the business, and, and his reaction was, "Well, why were you ill?" Mm. <laughs> Which seemed to me to be highly exemplary of their attitude to yeah. it. It's a different yeah, thing. Yeah. I mean, and, and and I'm you know I was you know it was a true story. I yeah. mean, he. he it was a very, very off-the-cuff, um, genuine remark. He could not think of any... I mean, I had been telling him for about 10 minutes beforehand about this great business that I had 
been involved with and everything about it and, and you know, getting all dewy-eyed about it. And, you know, it was his only rational explanation that why would you, why would you get out of it? Well, but just going back a step then, what values were there in the Green and Black's brand Given their proximity, its proximity to the founder, as as exactly as you're saying, Covent Garden Superman was close to the founders as well. But in Green and Black's case, what what values were there that you think could survive the now overtaken Cadburys and still like like those strong little weeds that find their way up through paving stone cracks? There there must have been really profound value beyond it being an organic product that made it fly so high and ultimately will make it survive even in that sort of environment? Well, I mean, you know, you always come back to product and taste and, 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 and delivering what the customer is looking for. You know, it, it was, it is an extraordinarily delicious chocolate. And there are lots of people who've come out with other chocolates at the same price point, some at heroically higher price points. And some of them are pretty good. Uh, 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 but some of them may be almost as good as green and blacks. But actually, for, for the amount you pay, it is an amazingly delicious chocolate, and and it looks beautiful. The, you know, the, the the branding has survived. But there were there were other aspects to the brand. It was a fantastic platform to communicate broader societal issues around business and around. Well, you know, relationship with the community, a relationship with your suppliers. You know, we, we, we didn't just put a stamp of fair trade on it. I mean, we were the original UK fair trade product. But we, you know, we were totally engaged with our, with our cacao farmers in, in Belize and then latterly the Dominican Republic. We, you know, we knew who they were. We knew where they lived. We'd been to see them. We knew their families. We weren't going to let them down. And, 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 you know, people like that. Is that still in existence? Do you know? As far as I, as far as I know, you don't hear about it as much. But as far as I know, and 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 even if it's been watered down, I'm sure it's been copied by others. And so it's you know it's been a force for good. You know, we told the story because we knew there were lots of customers out there who wanted to hear the story. They wanted to feel. I mean, chocolate is not. You don't need to eat chocolate. So actually, eating something that tastes delicious and which delivers a benefit. I mean, what's not to like yeah, about that? And with a fantastic backstory uh, yeah. that, that was very timely. So moving on then, th- there's a gap, isn't there, after that, before Causton Press sort of becomes your your next, as it were, branded project, as I understand there was a gap, which we might come back to. But perhaps we could just do a little bit about Causton. And, and one of the things that struck me about all three of these it may seem like a slightly banal thing, but I don't think it is, is the packaging of Covent Garden soup in the milk carton. Mm. A great bit of semiotic signalling, this is fresh. Um, Green and Black led the charge in elegant mass package, beautiful packaging. Uh, leave aside the backstory. Uh, and now Causton, which, I mean, I think, again, is another sensational bit of packaging. H- how much... Were you weaving packaging into the the equation from the start, or, or when you look back, do you find actually we did it well three times, but it's it's become even more important than I thought it was? Well, I think we were always weaving it. It, it always was was vitally important because we've always had businesses where we've had very very little money to spend on marketing, and so we've spent 
what little we had on the things that we thought really mattered. So, I mean, you know, it, it, it is the, the point that the customer encounters you for the first time. And obviously, they've got to get beyond the packaging to the product. So, yes, it's been critically important for us. Um, I mean, I can't imagine it not being. I mean, we we took on Causton Press. It was called Causton Vale, in fact. And, and, and the product was, was brilliant. That's why we got involved. Um, but the packaging was was woeful. It didn't represent what was inside it. It just looked like every other juice, and yet they were trying to charge a, a premium for it, which 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 it deserved because it was much better. Mm. So you know it kind of follows. So it's not. I I don't think it's it's not very it's not very insightful to say you need something very special in the packaging. It's then how do you actually do that? And I guess we've been quite good at it because we've always had people in the team who really care about design probably more so than they might in a in a typical consumer good business and who've been at the top table who won't let second best pass who've got quite sort of clear you know visual um aesthetic aesthetic and, yeah, and yeah. vocabulary themselves so they're able to if not design it themselves because we've always worked with with partners as you know um but have been able to write a brief in a way that a, a design partner gets it um and and so often when i see design briefs from other businesses they are they're quite well they, they give perhaps too much scope for the designer to indulge their fantasies or their what they think their you know latest award ought to be given for rather than actually responding to the brief you know we know a lot about the the, the, the business and the product by the time we Go get to, to brief. Get, get yeah. to brief. And so, when you uh, brief in that context, then how much work do you do, and what store do you place by becoming razor sharp? I mean, I might call it a single organising principle, but lots of people have got other a proposition. But I mean, a sharp brand proposition that is, I think, the prelude to a design or any other sort of brief. Do you put a lot of time, energy, money, value in that stuff? Well, we don't put a lot of money because we never have any, but we put a lot of... Um, it's all relative. <laughs> it's all relative. So, yeah, we put a lot of the very little money that we have got into it. <laughs> and we put a lot of time and um, we put a lot of uh, brain power and and maybe that's something that... Because we tend to... Have, we you know Nowadays, we've got a reasonable amount of experience, you know, that we can deploy. You're part of it. Mm. Um, the, the, you know, we so we, we, we bring as many conversations to bear onto onto that brief before we we go down that route and and as in most cases and certainly the one the conversations we're talking about we're dealing with an existing business an existing product you know we've already got some data we've already got people who are buying it we you know we can we can have some quite meaningful conversations which you can't if you're doing a startup hmm. um so if you're doing a startup i mean that gives you more scope in some respects but it also there's so many limitations so many limitations so so in each of the cases we've been talking about we've when by the time we as a team have got involved there's there's quite a lot of data there to work on and quite a lot of passionate customers who you can talk to this market Causton's market's tougher though isn't it oh yeah Uh, yeah you know it it doesn't you haven't quite got the the tidal rise of organic that Green and Black had. Um, I don't know about the the sort of enthusiastic cooks at Covent Garden Soup, but there was something original, new, different, you know, unique 
about them. This is much tougher. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. You're right. I mean, the Covent Garden there was sort of there was a new wave of of of, of young professionals. I think probably, you know, the first generation, and we were part of it. Of you know, couples where both were working equally, so time was poor. That you know, people put a lot of value on 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 what they ate for the first time in in a generation, but they had no time to do anything about it. So there were lots of things Gosh, that, yeah. that remember then. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. And and um, and you're right. I mean, you know, there are lots of areas in soft drinks where you can see niches where you might establish yourself. And look at Fever Tree, you know, mm. who'd have predicted that? But, well, they did, and, and, and they've delivered it. So, I mean, the thing about soft, the soft drinks industry is it is global. And um, and so it's very appealing for, for 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 entrepreneurs to get into it because if you get beyond a certain level, you know you can you it can, can, be huge, you, you yeah. can it can be huge, mm. um, and so you don't have this issue of having to start again every time you go to a new country. But it is harder to find, as you say, a sort of defining principle which sets you apart massively from everybody else. That said, you know, and it's taken us ten years since we got involved, or nearly ten years. You know, the whole sugar debate in the UK, which is, of course, going on in all other Western countries, in fact, all other countries, really. Um, the, the sugar debate has, has, has worked in our favour in that we were already a, a, a business that believed very strongly that, that taste shouldn't be masked by too much sweetness and that our customers were typically people who enjoyed a glass of, of wine or beer or whatever, but were looking for alternatives. So we were looking for an alcohol replacement a lot of the time. And and they were feeling very short-changed because, you know, you go into a lovely modern pub and everything was delicious until you got to the soft drinks, which was just... So disappointing. So disappointing, yeah. incredibly sweet. And yet you think, well, you know, if I wasn't driving, I'd be having a glass of dry white wine. So why do they assume I want something that's four or five times sweeter than that? So given how big it was and given how smart the people were doing soft drinks, you kind of wondered why they were so inept at understanding where this fast-growing, very valuable um, customer segment were, were going to buy their drinks. So, you know, it's given us... And, and the sugar thing's really taken off in the UK now, and we've got a sugar tax. We responded to the sugar tax... Um, for us in a very expensive way in that we've added more juice um, which has meant that we no longer have to pay the sugar levy um, and so we have a sugar no sh- added sugar policy across the board in, in Causton and that has set us apart and that has meant that you know the phones have been ringing almost constantly since last April when it came in from people who didn't return our calls up until then so, so yeah, you know yeah. okay it's taken us nine years perhaps being a little bit braver about something we always believed in and also, you know, a change in policy at, at, at um, you know, yeah. from the regulator. Yeah, well, that presents its own opportunities. As you say. Yeah. I mean, one, one of the most extraordinary things I think about Causton is the distribution strategy. It, it really is every nook and cranny. I mean, I found it in golf clubs and corner shops. Uh, I mean, leave aside all the big... I mean, it's extraordinary how it's permeated nooks and crannies. In fact... I think that was part of what the strategy was called, was it? Well, it well it was. I mean, we we realised quite. I mean, it, it, it's because drinks are very different from from food, and so you know, in our previous two brands that we've been talking about, the the main strategy was around the supermarkets, around the multiples, and and then everything sort of flowed from there. I mean, we had we had wholesale customers, we we had health food 
shops in with green and blacks who were early adopters of it but on the whole it was about the supermarkets the supermarkets don't actually sell a lot of drinks and the, the soft drinks and, and those that they do are sold on deal at christmas and, and whatever so you know they're a very important customer but um you've got to you, yeah, you've really got yeah, to yeah, get to yeah, all yeah. the other places yeah, yeah. and so we have we have spent a lot on 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 shoe leather mm. i i can't pretend that you know a a member of our staff has been to every golf club you're talking about but we've yeah. we've sort of made we've we, we facilitated it we've made it i don't know what it was that got that golf club to stock it but it's probably you know us having a very close conversation with a wholesaler and giving them the means to reach that golf club mm. and then once it's there it's established no, 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 and it's taken that it's yeah. taken us a long time well, just going back then, so what one other observation about all three of them is that you have been able to pull off this trick of, I mean, I might call it mass niche, where they're all premium brands or high quality products charged at not silly prices, but mm. premium, and yet in very wide and mass distribution. I mean, they're very everyday. You know, there's nobody that hasn't heard of Green and Black. Very few have never heard of Covent Garden Soup. Possibly a few less would cost them, but still. That's changing. It, that's changing, and it's everywhere. That's quite something, really, to, to be able to pull off that apparent contradiction. What's your take on that? How's that been? Well, I think we've chosen um, we've chosen areas which have the capacity to go mass niche or niche mass or whatever it was you said I, we, we you know i talked to a lot of of people who want to go into the food and drink sector and you look at what they're doing and they've usually got a delicious product they've made in their kitchen and you just think this isn't ever going to get to that sort of scale and but that's not that's not a reason not to do it it's a it's a reason to be cautious about how you approach it but you know this is a business that you know, in ten or fifteen years, could be a million pound business. So, if if you're, you know, if you want to pursue it, don't give half your shares away in the first year. Do it in a way that doesn't require a massive amount of capital injection at the at the start, because you may find yourself working very very hard for a very long time for a relatively modest stake in the business. Treat it as your own, and then one day it might well become very valuable for you. So, I think you know we've always. Um, and I particularly, you know, I'm quite impatient. So I'm, I, I want to work with other people as well. I, 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 I like working with a bigger team of, of people who are much smarter than me. So that kind of precludes a lot of businesses you might meet because they're just not big enough or they're not going to be big enough to do that. So I suppose, you know, over time you get a sense and you obviously you don't know, but you get a sense that you're involved in one that's got, if you play your cards right and the wind blows in the right direction for you it could get to that sort of size mm -hmm. well i mean bottom line to certainly those three those three but it's a truism generally isn't it that the product's got to stand up to scrutiny I mean, yeah that, that is not quite the beginning and the end of it certainly the beginning of it right well ju just to finish then william i want to just go back to that gap then mm. um and in particular the farm mm. uh and I remember being on it, and I remember you trying to explain to me this particular strand of wheat, I think, that, that hadn't been seen since Saxon times or whatever it was. Are you still doing much of that, sort of, how am I like, called, esoteric farming? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a, you know, as I said 
as we started. I'm I'm a farmer. I grew up as a farmer.、Mm. It's it's where my heart is. I I you know it's it's the most important thing that we do as 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 humans. It's how we feed ourselves, and I feel very strongly that we've got a lot of things wrong about farming in the last few generations. Really, since the last war,、um, and. What we're doing on our farm in Suffolk, and it's not a big farm, is is trying to sort of experiment and and prove that you can do things differently. And it, it's, I mean, it is an experiment, and it, it, a lot of people come along and say, "Well, is it profitable?" And you know, I say, "Well, nearly," and sometimes it's not so nearly. But I mean, it's it's it's, you know, we're we're setting an impossible、um, task to be profitable because we're always running yet another experiment on it. But what we're trying to do is, is first of all, you know, farmers have got very bad at dealing with、um, what what the customer wants because most farmers don't have customers, or they do, they have trade customers. Most farmers in Britain are producing commodities. Yeah, they sell probably their entire year's work on the back of several lorries and get one check for it. You know, that that's their entire sales ledger, and so you know, over time that. Removes you from the marketplace. I mean, it was never that way before. You know, if I look at my forebears, you know, they were constantly worrying about whether you know such and such shop was going to take your milk. And my great granny had a had a whole series of carts that went around the villages and towns of East Bedfordshire, where I grew up, delivering butter and milk, and and she was advertising in the local papers, and she was doing all of that. And I, you know. I channel her when I think about what I'm doing, but you know her successors, with the exception of of me, have decided to concentrate on being very very efficient producers and have allowed other people to take the benefits of their hard work, and have have you know they've just become commodity producers. But is, is that the reason you're saying that we've treated mistreated farming since the war? I mean, predominantly that that we've become as farmers producers and factories rather than providers of. Things that real people need. Well, I think so. I think so. I mean, I, I, you know, you, 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 there's probably some other elements in there. What I think, you know, the commoditization of meat and protein production has, to some extent, been driven by the need to produce it at a very low cost because you're no longer selling direct to the customer. But I think, you know, what's happened is the customers become much more worried about all of that, and 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 the farmer. Isn't in a position to respond anymore because what has happened, of course, is that you know to survive, the farmers have got bigger and bigger and bigger because they're producing stuff at incredibly low margins, and so it's quite difficult to then engage in what we're doing in Suffolk, which is talking to our neighbours and selling to them again because you know the farmers saying, well, I've got a, I've got a barn. Full of you know, it's got fifty thousand tons of wheat. How yeah, do I yeah, how do I sell that? And, yeah, you know,、yeah. I mean, I I bought a flour mill to deal with it, but I I haven't got fifty thousand tons of wheat to sell. So I started from scratch again and said, well, we're not going to sell anything unless we can sell it to the end customer. And so we know we do produce quite a lot of grain still, but we feed it to hens and we sell it in, as branded eggs on the farm. And and I mean more than that. I, I know that the the local waitrose there has been heavily influenced by you, and they take much of your stuff. And I dare say other locals. To what extent has that caught on? Them it just seems like such a brilliant idea. Even just being crassly commercial on behalf of the supermarkets, the thought that they might do more of that. Well, I mean, I think they'd love to do more of it, not just waitrose. I think they all would because you know their customers. 
tell them that they want yeah. more of that. But it, it and wait and you're right, Waitrose have been very supportive. They've always you know, because they have a bigger range and because perhaps their customers over index on caring about the story behind their the food and drink they buy. But the the supermarket model in its later stages, which is the ones we're in now, don't doesn't really lend itself to that because what you've described is hassle. You know, we're in four waitroses. Waitroses have got over two hundred I don't know how many stores they've got, but anyway, they've got, you know, a lot more stores than four. Yeah. And so having to deal with me involves having somebody at head office and, and you know, it's not something that they can plan a gram across the estate. They have to no. – and, and so, you know, good on them for doing that and, as you say, allowing lots of other um, small producers to come in too, and I, and, and I hope it benefits them. I mean, I know we are – in our local Waitrose, we are both their best-selling egg and their most expensive one, so it certainly works – you know, superficially yeah, for, well, for, for them. And also there's a whole, you know, the, and the internet obviously provides it. There are a whole load of other channels which are doing quite well out of the public's desire to buy food with a story. So it's not necessarily the supermarkets who are going to be the beneficiary of this new this new wave. No, no, quite. William, thank you very much for your time and for your erudite explanation of all these amazing brands that you've created and delivered to the world. And here's to your farming elbow. Thank you very much. Really enjoyed it. You're very welcome. Thanks again, William. Please do subscribe to the podcast in your usual podcast app to get new episodes when they're released. If you have any comments or questions, don't hesitate to get in touch with me. It's robert at robertbeanbranding.com. Thanks for listening.